my name is Matt. I want to welcome you to all six of our physical locations. Welcome those of you that are watching online on some kind of uh, <coughs> electronic device. We're glad you're here. We're navigating verse by verse, as you know, through the book of 1 Samuel. And today we get to probably the most famous story, right? In the whole, maybe in the Bible in many ways, but certainly in the Old Testament, certainly in Samuel, the story of like David and Goliath. Even if you're not like, uh, if you're kind of new to church or checking out Christianity or Rockbridge for the first time, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. Because doesn't everybody, I mean, like everybody, it's like universal. You love like an underdog story. You love it like the story of the 1980 men's hockey team that upset the Soviets. I mean, the, the movie Rudy. I mean, we all love like the underdog story. And in many ways, this is a classic underdog story. And it kind of needs no introduction, except that it does, because the way we often are taught to apply this story goes something like this. You and I are supposed to be like David, and you can face, or you can defeat the giant that you're facing. And, and, and most of us here today, you know, you've got a giant that you're facing. And it could be a giant called cancer. It could be a giant called uh, marital trouble. It could be a giant called financial uncertainty, inflation. I mean, it could be a, a whole host of things. And so we, we look at David and Goliath, and we read this story, and we're like, man, i got to be like David, and, and I can defeat the giant. However, I, I got to bust a bubble. That's the wrong way to interpret the story. But it's the way most of us are, in, are taught to interpret David and Goliath. And, and it seems good because it's like, man, this is the story you share before the big game. It's the story, if you're the CEO, you, sh you share this with your employees to fire them up and to motivate them. But it's not the biblical meaning of David and Goliath. So we tend to interpret it like this. This is David. We should be more like David. This, there's a name for that. It's called, it's called eisegesis, which is where you take interpretation of a text and you read your own ideas and own presuppositions into that. And at Rockbridge, I, let me share a little vision. We began this church, you know, 20, 21 years ago, and we said we only have one tradition. It's the Bible. Before we face any decision, we're going to ask this question, what does the Bible say? And so we put the, the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture front and center to who we are. I know not everybody agrees with that, but I have to have integrity with you to tell you that's where we stand. That's where the church has stood for most of its 2,000-plus year history. So it's incumbent when we're talking about the Word of God is to find the inspired author what did they mean under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when they wrote this into, uh, into the text that's been preserved for us for thousands of years? And then from that meaning, we draw out applications for ourselves. So the message is not, be like David, be more courageous, and go kill your giant. All right? So with that being said, what is the meaning and what is the message of David and Goliath? First Samuel chapter 17. The Philistines gathered their forces. We, we're always going to be battling the Philistines for a while, right? So they gathered their forces for war there in Judah. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill. The Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. That's the military situation. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp he was nine feet, nine inches tall. Actually, there's some scholars who believe this has been interpreted or written down incorrectly. Some say he's more like six foot nine. 
he's still a giant, right? Even by today's standards, okay? He's a large man. And he wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale armor. Now, this is interesting. This is the only time that we have in a description of military battle gear in Hebrew where this concept of a scale armor is used. And scales make us think of snakes, and snakes make us think of Satan. So I think the biblical author is indicating that Goliath is somewhat of a satanic, devilish figure in the story. More on that as we move forward. So he had this bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins. A bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam. And the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He's humongous, right? He's ginormous. He's like your worst nightmare, all right? And so he comes out and he stood and he shouted to the Israelite battle formations, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Now, let's go back. If you missed this, I'll catch you up. When, we found, when, when Saul was anointed, chosen to be king of Israel, there was a description of Saul. It was he was head, a head taller than everybody else. So Israel has their own giant. As their king, and his name is Saul, Philistines have their giant, his name is Goliath. So Goliath says, choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. This is called representative warfare. Occasionally, instead of 10,000 people dying, They would choose one soldier from each, the best of the best, and whoever won, the battle was over. That side won, and only one person died. It's called representative warfare, and that's what Goliath and the Philistines are inviting Israel to do. Then the Philistines said, I defy, and this word defy shows up, a version of the Hebrew word, six times in the text. So that's important to the meaning of the text. I defy, I ridicule. I I stand against, I defy it. I'm in defiance of the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And then the question is, okay, what's Saul going to do? He's the king. He's the one the people demanded. He's the one the people prayed and asked God for. God's like, okay, be careful what you ask for, right? So when Saul... And all Israel heard these words from the Philistines. They lost their courage and were terrified. They lost their courage and were terrified. So in the story, we're going to have essentially three main characters or three main entities. First, we have the Philistines and their representative, Goliath. And these kind of stand for defiance and condemnation. And there are clearly satanic spiritual warfare overtones in the story, one by the description of the, of the armor of, of Goliath and also by his defiance of the people of God. You have, whether you and I are aware of it or not, you, you know, we have a spiritual enemy that wants to separate us from God's best, that wants us to choose fear over faith, that wants us to live in condemnation rather than acceptance of our identity as the people of God. So all of that is operating in the story. And here's what I would guess too. Some of that 
is operating in your mindset or your soul as I'm speaking here 3,000 years after this event. So you start to see this story is more than just this cool underdog story. It has spiritual connotations. It has military implications. And it meets us a little bit as we understand the nature of Goliath and the Philistines. Then we have the Israelites and Saul, and they're stuck in fear, and they're separated from God's best. Because they know what God's best is, right? They know God's best, at least geographically, politically, militarily, is this is their land. It has been promised to them since Genesis 12, Genesis 15 to Abraham. But in between them and the promises of God stands the Philistines and Goliath. So we can understand that because I think there's some of us, and, and we may know God's will for us, we may know God's love for us, but we're separated from it. We haven't fully realized it yet. So that's going on in the story. And then we met him last week. His name was David. He's anointed the king as king, goes back to the pasture to keep the sheep. So we're just sort of like, how does David fit into this story? We're like, David, last week we met him and he, had, he never said a word. People talked about him. People pulled him out of the pasture, anointed him as king, and then put him back to the pasture. And we, so we're just like, question mark, question mark. What's David's role in this? What's going to happen with David in this? The story continues in 1 Samuel 17. We go to David. He's the son of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons during Saul's reign. And Jesse was an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. But David, the youngest, kept going back and forth from Saul to also tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. So he's still the shepherd boy. He's still in the pasture. He has this promise that he'll be the eventual king but he's still in the pasture. So as we just kind of move through the story, we begin to see something and we begin to identify. In fact, instead of, hey, be like David, let's see that we're really probably more like Israel. Like Israel, we face opposition and adversity that is bigger than we can handle. God will put more on you than you can handle. There's a reason for that. But yes, like Israel, we face opposition and adversity that seems larger than we can handle. Like Israel, we hear voices that defy or ridicule and condemn us. We hear voices that encourage us to stay apart from God. We hear voices that encourage us not to pursue God's best for us. We hear voices that condemn us for what we have done. We hear voices that tell us we're stuck, nothing will change, and, and, and you know, you've, just, you've sinned away the best part of your life. We hear all those kind of voices too, right? And then like Israel, we often respond with fear and acceptance of the status quo. Acceptance of the status quo. We're stuck. The enemy, the giant, is bigger than we are. We're going to just do what we need to do to survive, but we really don't know what to do. And, and, and so we see ourselves somewhat in, more in Israel than anything else, right? And we still have this question, though, in the story, and it is, what is this David kid going to do? This shepherd kid, what's he going to do? So David gets up early one morning, and he left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him to go check on the oldest three. 
He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster, and he ran to the battle line. That's just a subtle little indication that there's something a little bit different about this kiddo. Remember last week he had his learner's license? He's not much older than that, right? So there's something different. He's willing to run to the battle line. We don't know what that means yet, but it's just an indicator that the author is, is, is kind of including in there. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. Very key. What will David respond? Saul and Israel shrink back in fear, paralysis, condemnation. What will David's response be? When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Now, previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes out to defy, to ridicule, to stand in opposition to the people of God, to Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. And then in verse 26, David speaks to the man who were, the men who were standing with him. This is the first time David's going to speak. And so it's important. There's three speeches of David in the text. I, I tell people when we're reading the Old Testament historical narratives, you pay attention to what's in quotes because what's in quotes is, 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 the, is important to the meaning, the original meaning, not the eisegesis meaning, but the original meaning of the text. So David is finally going to speak. We've not heard him speak. We've heard people speak about him. We've seen, you know, heard a little bit of his story. So he's going to speak. Is he going to be scared? What is the nature of his faith? Does he have faith? How's David going to respond as he has heard the giant Goliath defy his people and his God? What's David going to do? And so finally, after a couple of chapters, right, David says, what will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Now listen. You got to pay attention to David's questions. Saul and Israel are saying, have you seen the size of that giant? David says, that's a disgrace. What happens to the one who kills him? There's a difference. There's a difference. See, the questions you ask, ask yourselves, the question you ask God when we face adversity, tell us a lot about are we operating in faith or are we operating in fear? So David comes out and seems undeterred by the giant of a man with the scaly armor standing across the ravine. And then he goes even further, and it shows you even more of his faith. <coughs> Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. They're saying, do you know who's out there threatening us? David's saying, who does this uncircumcised guy think he is? 
And when he says uncircumcised, here's what he means. He is not in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. He is not under the promises of God. He does not have the protection of God. He is not standing in the purposes of God. He is not in the plan of God. In fact, he is in the way of God. And David sees that. And David thus asks the question. So, like Israel, though, our starting point when we face things is often wrong. We, we, we start with ourselves and the problem. Am I, can I handle the problem or not? We start with the size of the problem. We start with the, the, the challenge in front of us. Does David do that? Israel starts with a giant. David starts with God. David starts with God. Notice how you talk to yourself about your challenges. Notice how you talk to yourself about situations and circumstances in life. I, I think some, Christians are some of the most hand-wringing, nervous people on the planet. Anytime a war breaks out, anytime something goes crazy in Washington, I mean, it's like, what is God doing? Start with God. God is bigger than the giant. The giant is defying God. And David recognizes that. He senses that. But uh, David's got some naysayers. Remember Eliab from last week? He was the oldest brother, and Samuel thought he was going to be the next king because he looked apart and he was the oldest. So he spoke to the men. He became angry with David. He says, why did you come down here? He goes, who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? Notice that. Notice that. Who do you think you are? You belong in the pasture, little man. I mean, he's standing there just ridiculing David. He goes, I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. How does David respond to these voices? What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. As we've seen, it's the right question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had David brought to him. Finally, there's somebody that seems to have a little bit of courage. No one else has it. Saul certainly doesn't have it. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't. You can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. You're just a boy. You, don't, you can't even sign up for the draft yet. You don't even have your driver's license. You're still popping zits, right? I mean, all those things. Who do you think you are? He's been a warrior since he was your age, since he was young. Now, here we are, and we've got to understand what's going on. But this word, defiance, kind of shows us something that's going on. Really what's going on in the story, and it becomes David's response to this, is you really have people taking the Lord's name in vain. 
Now, I'll unpack that. We're, they're standing in defiance of God. Now, you know, you and I are probably raised that taking the Lord's name in vain was one particular bad word, and it was like the queen mother of all bad words, right? And you just never say that, okay? And that's certainly part of it. But when we get that third commandment in the Old Testament and what we see Goliath doing, the Philistines doing, Eliab doing, what we see Saul doing is they're taking the name of the Lord in vain because the name of the Lord represents the essence of who God is as the great I am, as the I am that I am, that, I, that God is the essence of reality, that God has no beginning, that God has no end, that God is completely self-sufficient, that God is completely sovereign and majestic and resplendent, that God has a plan, that nothing can stand in the way of who God is and what God wants to be done. And so the whole story is in defiance of God and his name, his essence, and his character, right? So Goliath is defiant, he's hostile, he's threatening. Eliab, disapproval and contempt. And Saul is a voice of discouragement. And you know, I, I think there's a lot of us, when we look at ourselves, we have to look at ourselves. How does God see us? How does God see us? And when we see ourselves differently or we let voices that take the Lord's name in vain speak to us, that takes power over us and keeps us from living in the reality of who God is. And Because there's, there's people here today and what stands between you and God's will for you is you have given weight to a voice of disapproval, discouragement, and contempt that is defying the name of God over your life. And that's, all, that's what's happening theologically, <coughs> spiritually, in the story. Because the name of the Lord is being defied. Not just with the word your parents said not to say, but it's being defied in three ways. And it's the same three for us. Words that ridicule the great I am. That stand in opposition to who God is, what God has done, and what God promises to do. We see emotions that defy the awesome reality of God. Fear, that fear that they have, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Because it's saying, hey, what God has promised, what God has provided, and who God is, is not enough next to the giant. And, and then there's action and inaction. The paralysis of the Israelite army, the fear, the lack of courage, the lack of conviction of Saul, does injustice to the name of God and the character of God and the hope of God. And, and so, the, what, what we're seeing in the story <coughs> is David recognized this is not of God. And, and just, let's just take 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. One of the, listen to me, church. And, and even if you're not, not a Christian yet, listen to me, Okay. One of the most important things we can do as human beings is gain the ability to discern and know what is not of God. There are voices all around us, just like there are voices all around David. 
There are circumstances all around us, just like there's a giant all around David. And having the ability to know the great I am, to know the living God, to know Yahweh in a covenant relationship allows us to see what is of God and what is not of God. So while Saul and Israel sees a massive, massive giant of a man, what does David see? He's uncircumcised. He's not under the sovereign protection of God. So he's nothing. He's nothing. So, so listen, here's this so important. It's so important to everybody here today, so important to me. Do you know what the greatest problem in the story is? Before we get there, I would submit this to you. Now, some of you are going to disagree with me, and that's fine. You can talk about it in your small group, talk about it on your way home, okay? So, so listen, do you know what your greatest problem is, my greatest problem is? And, and I, 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 listen, I don't have to know what your giant thing is or what your big problem is or your adversity is, but I'm going to tell you, you know what the greatest problem in the story is? Unbelief in the name of God. Unbelief in who God is, what God has promised, what God will do for people who stand in his word and live for his glory. Unbelief is the greatest problem in Rockbridge. Unbelief is the greatest problem in the church in America. Unbelief is what Satan loves to foster in people who are in God's house and people who are apart from God. Just unbelief. Not, not that whole like, do you believe God exists thing? Do you believe in God? No, but do you believe God? When you face a giant, do you believe God when he tells you you were worth him dying for? Do you believe God when he says your sin is wrong and you need to repent and get right with me again? Do you believe God? The greatest problem is unbelief. In fact, I, I, I'll go out on a limb here. God is more offended by the unbelief of Israel and Saul than by the words of defiance of the uncircumcised Philistine. Because the Philistine giant Goliath doesn't know God. Israel does. God is more bothered by unbelief in the church than he is by wokeness outside of the church. We're all screaming at our culture they're uncircumcised. They're not in covenant with God. We have the blood of Jesus. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. Why should we walk around fearful and in unbelief, taking the Lord's name in vain when we have that spirit of God living inside of us? Amen. So we see that, right? So Saul's like, hey, little boy, you can't do this. That's unbelief, taking the Lord's name in vain. David gives a speech to Saul. He says, listen, he says, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. You know that part of David's life that we see from our, from our People magazine? You know, I got to be in the palace mentality. If I'm not keeping up with the Joneses, then God's left the building. David's like, no, no, no. 
God had me there in the pasture. It didn't look like much. You know, my brother made fun of how many sheep I tended. But while I was there, something was going on. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its first, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This, let's repeat it, uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And David and Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Now look what David does. And this is very, very, very insightful for for many of us here today. David has history with God. David has a personal history with God. So he's got to muster up some present-day faith to do what he's about to do. But he gains that faith by looking at God's past faithfulness to him in the pasture. The world would have said David was put to pasture. David's a nobody. He's the youngster. He has the worst chores to do. But David saw that as preparation. David saw that as an opportunity to build a history with God. Back in July, (coughs) I'm a water guy, right? I was in the Navy. So I went out on the lake by myself and just had an incredible time with the Lord. And there was repentance and, and, uh, and soul searching, but I was struggling, you know, just needed some, I, my faith was kind of, you know, it was like one of those God I believe but help my unbelief moments like the Father in the Gospel of Mark. And I was reading one of my little devotional books, My Utmost for His Highest, and one of the things Oswald uh, said in that was, hey, sometimes you need to look back at the past faithfulness of God. So in my journal, I just start writing down, eight years old, came to Christ, rededicated my life when I was a teenager in youth ministry. I started writing down, you know, uh, how God called me to ministry. I wrote down how I, you know, how I met my wife, uh, middle school, learned how to have time with God, how to have a quiet time with God, the, the adoption story of my boys, getting through my wife's leukemia, starting, starting Rock Bridge. I mean, just, just everything that came to mind in like a five, ten-minute period of time. And when I was done, I was like, man, God is faithful. God, I believe you're faithful. And so David, in this present-day challenge of the giant, or, but David doesn't see a giant. David sees an uncircumcised dude that doesn't have God's protection. David recounts to Saul the faithfulness of God. And Saul says, okay, go. The Lord's not with me. Maybe he's with you. And then Saul kind of does what he knows how to do. He puts his own military clothes on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. He said, I can't walk in these. And David said to Saul, I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi or the creek and put them in his pouch in his shepherd's bag. David's comfortable being David. 
David's this guy that wherever he's at, he just shows up and he's faithful to what God got for him in that spot. Remember I told you last week, if you weren't here, I'll remind us, this is like the lowest job you did in Israel. Nobody thought much of the shepherds. And David's like, I'm going to go face the giant and just be who I am. This is what God's prepared me for, perhaps. This is what faithfulness in this present moment looks like. And I'm going to look back and see God's past faithfulness. He got me through this and he got me through that. And, 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 and God's got me here for a reason. And then when his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. And David's going to give another speech. Now, here, here's, this is very, very significant before we read the speech. Listen, the battle scene that we're going to get to, uh, many of us have heard before, the, the, you know, you, you kind of know how the story ends. If you don't, hold on. But the battle scene is 36 Hebrew words. That's all we get. The speech David's about to give back to the giant is 63 words. You can tell a lot about your faith and my faith, about the words you use, how you talk to yourself, and do you preach to yourself? You preach the news of who God is. You can tell an awful lot by how we process all the voices and then what comes out. So 63 words versus 36 words. Here's David's speech. Back to the giant. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies. We're not taking the Lord's name in vain on my watch. The God of the ranks of Israel, you have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. And then look at what David, this, God, this is so important. I'm not getting goosebumps up here. All right, look at David's motivation. So different from the narcissistic Saul, who's me, myself, and I. Look at me. Let me take a selfie and make a monument to me. Look at David's motivation. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly, Israel itself, the people standing, the, the soldiers, the Israelites, will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. His motivation is the glory of God. When you stand on the word of God, when you trust in the name of God and you aim at the glory of God, then you and I can say, the battle is the Lord's. Let me say that again. When you and I can get to a place, which means we have to shut up some voices or not listen to some voices, 
means we might have to review the past faithfulness of God in our lives that for all of us goes back to a bloody cross and an empty tomb. But when we get to the spot where we stand on the Word of God, trust in the name of God, and aim for the glory of God, the battle is the Lord's. When the Philistine started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. He put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. And David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Isn't that great? Now, the question we started this, we talked about the characters, right? We said, hey, you know, we're kind of more like Israel and Saul. And then we've got the Philistine and Goliath, which is our, our enemy, our, our satanic opposition standing in defiance of God. Who's David? Who is David in the story? David represents true Israel. You know, Paul says in the New Testament, not all Israel, meaning ethnic Israel, is Israel. Israel are the people of faith. Israel are the people who believe and trust in the Word of God, aim for the glory of God, and believe in the power of the name of God. And David represents true Israel because he is the one operating by faith, not unbelief. And he points to the true King Jesus. So the story is not David, and we should be more like David. The story is David points us to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, and now we're the true Israel by faith under the true King Jesus. Let me show you this even more. So the Philistines, which is sort of, they see that their hero is dead. They fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines. And there's a massive victory, and it's all started because of what Jesus has done. So the, 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 the beauty of this story is this. Remember it's representative battle? David versus Goliath. David points us to Jesus. Jesus carried a cross. That was his weapon. And he defeated sin, death, and Satan. The enemies of sin, death, and the devil are defeated. Who should we be afraid of? Amen. How now should we live? Right? So, so look, look, see Jesus in the story, church. See Jesus in the story. Israel sees what David has done as their representative. He defeated the giant. And they are aroused. They're awakened. And they go fight from victory, not for it, from victory, David's over Goliath, and they rout the enemy, the Philistines. You and I see what Jesus has done. He has disarmed Satan. He has defeated sin and death. We see what he has done, and now we move forward into our lives, not for victory, but from victory, fighting because Jesus has already won the biggest battle and slain the biggest giant, sin, Satan, and death. Amen. Isn't that amazing? And, and so, yes, we are supposed to have the courage of David, but it does not come 
from just saying, oh, I got to be more like David. It comes, no, I got to be more like David. It comes from seeing what Christ has done, just like the courage of the Israelites came from seeing what David, operating in perfect faith, has done. So think about this in the story. Saul has no courage. Goliath has counterfeit courage. Israel is discouraged. And David, by faith in God and the name of God, aiming at the glory of God, has true courage. So here's this. Here's the invitation. We'll close. I want to invite all of us to believe in the name of the Lord. And everything that name means and represents. For some of us, it is a forgiveness moment, a repentance moment for taking God's name in vain because you do not believe what God believes about you. You do not believe what God believes about his plans for you. You have been believing the bad voices, the satanic voices, the Iliab voices. And so today you're going to say, God, I'm going to believe in your name and trust in your word. And God, I will trust in your work. Just like Israel trusted in the work of David against the giant, we trust in the work of Jesus on the cross and Jesus in the empty tomb. That Jesus, that we face an enemy, but just like Goliath was defeated before the battle even started, the enemy you face, Satan, is defeated before you ever face him. You just have to do what? We have to believe. And then could we as a church and individuals say, you know what, God, we're going to live for your glory. There's enough narcissistic Christians. There's enough, you know, prosperity gospel Christians, if, they, if they're even really Christians. There's enough Christians who, who have lost the bubble of what it's all about. It is all about the glory of the Lord. And then finally, church, when we look at what Jesus has done, and we see David in this incredible story pointing us to Jesus who, sl who, who killed the biggest giant ever. Let's take some courage, because the best is yet to come. We pray together. God, I love you so much. Thank you for your word. And I just want to pray for all of us here today, God. Lord, would you let our eyes go to Calvary and the cross? Would you let us see it should have been us, but it was you that hung there, died there, and then rose again? And God, may we see what you have truly done so that we can trust in, believe in your name and go out and fight, not for a victory, but from your victory, believing in your power, aiming in your glory, and believing and knowing the best is yet to come. God, have your way in every heart, mind, and soul here tonight, here this weekend, all across Rockbridge, everybody watching online, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.